Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. During the research for her new book, Philosophy Behind Bars, Growth and Development in Prison, Kirstine Schiffris taught philosophy to men in different types of prison. This is an area that's still relatively under-researched, despite there being 11 million people in prisons across the world and 80,000 in the UK. Kirstine's aim was to build theory to establish whether philosophical thinking can be a way to encourage and enable growth and development while in prison. The book reveals so much about life in different prison environments, from a therapeutic community to a high security prison where half of the population were classified as vulnerable with themes covering many areas, including survival, identity, trust, community, and freedom to change. The voices of the men themselves, most serving long sentences, speak loudly in the book and help us to answer the central question. Can philosophy offer ways of moving the prison experience from survival to growth? Hi, Kirsty. Hello, that was Hello. a lovely introduction, thank you. Oh, thank you, it was a great book. I really, really enjoyed reading it and it taught me an awful lot. Um, but can we start by talking about you? Can you tell us a bit about your background and why you wanted to write the book? Um, I sort of, yeah, so my background um, is I came an interesting route to the point of teaching philosophy in prisons that doesn't always um, add up, but there is a thread. And the thread is education, really. I started out doing a, a, a mathematics degree at Sheffield University, and then I did a, um, a PGCE there. Uh, after that, I taught for a couple of years uh, in the UK and abroad. Um, and during my time teaching, I trained in a programme called Philosophy for Children. Um, and I ran a couple of lunchtime classes and, and after student afternoon clubs for the um, uh, kids at the school I was working at. Uh, and then I decided that I was wanted to go back to university to study something more social. I'd been thinking about psychology or sociology or criminology, something like that. Um, but I wanted a, a sort of thing that was that, I, that was mine that I wanted to focus on. And I kind of hit upon prison education, um, partly because um, I uh, taught at a school where a couple of young boys were expelled. Uh, from from the school for reasons that I, I understood, but I also felt like I'd started to make progress with them for the first time in in, in six months of teaching them or something, and and mm. I've got started just get worried that you know I'd taken six months to make progress and they'd just been kicked out of the school, but um, I would wondered what happened to their would happen to their education basically, and there was kind of a there was a sense there was a path that they were going towards, so it started to. Miss, me thinking about well what happens to people when they're no longer in mainstream education so I decided to go and do a master's at Cambridge University um, in, at the Institute of Criminology there and was fortunate enough to get Alison Liebling as my supervisor who during one of my first supervisions when I told her my story about teaching philosophy in, in schools uh, just sort of suggested that I did that in prisons um, and I didn't really think about it said yes um, and then went away and then sort of as I learned more about prisons and had a go at doing a few taster sessions uh, during my master's realized that there was a really rich and interesting topic um, and that's how it became the focus of my PhD 
Um, so yeah, so in terms of the reason why I wrote the book, um, it felt to me that I'd spent so much time. It basically was a book that I felt I needed to, to write. Um, that there was things that needed to be said. Um, and it felt like having spent so much time with the, with the participants in, in the prison, I felt I owed it to them and I owed it to the time that they had given me um, to make sure I actually got this into, into something that was accessible and interesting for, for people to read. Cause I felt like it had, it gave, it gave me something to say, their time with me gave me something to say, so. That's a really interesting reason for wanting to write. And you had, there's not many people who get that perspective is there and have those conversations with prisoners as well to be able to learn from it. Mm. Um, so you taught the classes yourself mm -hmm. um, and then you went into two types of prison. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you th talk about three distinct types of prisoner. Can you give us an overview of the different environments and the different people you were teaching? <clears throat> yes, um, it, it's important to remember that prisons vary and prison experiences vary. Um, and they can vary dramatically, um, in fact. Um, and, and the Prisons Research Centre at, at, at Cambridge has a lot more to say on that side of things. But I ended up basically teaching similar populations, but all in different circumstances. So I was teaching people serving very long sentences or indeterminate sentences or life sentences. I think, I can't remember, it says in, I say it in a book, but I think the shortest sentence might have been eight years and basically everybody else had over 10 years or, or life. But they were in very different prisons and, and, and also at very different points in their sentence. Right. So Grendon is a therapeutic community. The men, um, in order to get to Grendon, um, most of the men had been in what we call Cat A, which is the highest category of, of security. And if you get life and things like that, I think I'm right in saying that, that you automatically go to category A to begin with. I might be wrong about that, but most of them had come from the Cat A system, not all. Um, and so some progress had been made because Grendon is a category B, so they had come down in the categories okay. uh, because they were lower risk. So the men there tended to be later on in their sentences, they tended to, to have settled a little bit. There's quite a lot of research about the first few years of in, in prison being quite unsettling. Um, and they also were, were in heavy therapy all of the time. They did therapy five mornings a week. They did things like art therapy, psychodrama um, in the afternoons. Um, and quite a lot of them were doing open university courses. But basically there was, there was just this sense of doing something with their uh, with their time in prisons. So Grendon's, Grendon's a therapeutic community, isn't it? It is, And yes. it's the only therapeutic community prison in the UK. Is that it's right? It's the only prison that is a therapeutic community in its entirety. Right, so there okay. are therapeutic community wings in some prisons across England and Wales, which we should also, Scotland has a different system, Northern Ireland has a different yes. system. So, um, although they're, they're in some ways they're similar and obviously there's things that cross over, but it's the only prison that is in, in its entirety a therapeutic community. Okay. Others are just specific wings. Dovegate in particular is one that is, um, is, has, a, has a strong therapeutic community wing. Um, okay. Yeah, but in, in, Gwent, in Full Sutton, there over there, it was, it was, a max, it was a high security prison and the men tended to be much earlier on in their sentences. So they tended to be a couple of years in and they were facing very long sentences. So rather than, I think in, in Grendon, I had one guy who'd been serving for something like 
37 years already. He'd already been in prison for something for well over 30 years. Whilst the guys in Full Sutton were often about to serve 30 something years, but had only served three or four. Okay. And they didn't, they hadn't moved on in their sentences. They were still on quite high security categories. They hadn't managed to come down the categories. And there was less kind of focus on that, that type of, uh, there was much more focus um, on occupying people's time um, as opposed to giving them a way of moving forwards and, and out of, out of yeah. the system. Um, but even in Full Sutton, we then had two community, two aspects of the prison. We had um, the vulnerable prisoners unit and we had the um, uh, what we call the mainstream unit, or certainly that's what they called it when I was there. They might have different terms for it now. Things move on. But the there was about half and half. So half the prison was vulnerable. And, and that's for people who were basically at danger, in danger if they're in the mainstream community. It yeah. tends to be synonymous with people who've been convicted of sex offences, but actually that's not necessarily the case. It's also people who might be ex-police officers, people who have been labelled a kind of snitch or something like that, okay. um, or have got themselves into debt in some way. But I think about 60% of the vulnerable unit was people who've been convicted of uh, sort of sexual offences or crimes against okay. women. And then the mainstream was was the other half, violent offences, um, um, terrorism offences and various various things like that so the two they were very very different they they occupied the same physical space the class that I had at Full Sutton was in the same classroom on different days but one day I had the vulnerable prisoners unit one day I had the 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 mainstream prisoners um so it's a really it was almost I didn't you know I read this book um called oh, I've forgotten what it's called it's called the city in the city I can't recall the name of the author now um but it was, it's about two cities, I think they made a BBC uh, TV show about it, but it's about two cities, two groups of people who live in the same city, but they, they aren't allowed to look at each other or talk to each other. Okay. And when I read it, it felt like full <laughs> sudden. They're, exactly, they're in the same corridors, they're just moved at different points. Okay. And different workshops, whilst they're next to each other, will be for different people. And so in education, um, different days were given to the so on, on I can't remember what days but two of the days a week would be for mainstream and two of the days a week would be for vulnerable prisoners um, and they would just move around the prison at, at different times to keep them away from each other but it was all in the same space they're not actually physically separate prisons they're just yeah separately yeah and I think we'll probably talk about this a bit later later but it's really interesting in the book you show how these different groups kind of reacted very differently to the teaching and the discussion, didn't they? Yeah. And that was really interesting. So at the heart of the book, you're looking at the value studying philosophy and having philosophical discussion can bring to prisoners and whether or not it can help them to grow, develop and desist from crime. So can you talk us through some of, I mean, there's a lot, but can you talk us through some of what you discovered about this? I think so what did I discover about growth and desistance? So desistance literature, let's just start there. There's a chapter in the book that kind of covers all of this. And as I said, I, I was working with um, long-term prisoners. And for those who don't know, desistance means um, gradually desisting from crime. It's the notion of desisting from criminal behaviors. And it's usually seen as a process, um, a period over time. And the reason why desistance literature was so interesting for my work was that it's one of the few areas of criminology that has spent time thinking about identity and identity change 
specifically mm. in the context of people who have committed um, criminal um, criminal offences. So I, I, I wasn't in any way testing the desistance process or, or seeing if it helped them desist. I couldn't possibly do that. It was a short period. And these guys are going to be in prison, some of them for a very long time. Um, but instead, it was more about here's some here's some people telling us something about identity and what that means to this particular group. And this seems very relevant um, to the people that I'm working with. And we ended up doing, I'm, I'm very interested in identity and identity change in general um, and, and what it means to be human and what it means to live um, and be and engage with the world. And it meant that quite a few of the philosophical uh, discussion sessions did focus on identity. Uh, I covered uh, various different people in the book. Um, who did I cover? I covered um, uh, Kant and um, John Stuart Mill about behaviour um, and I covered Hume and Descartes about their mind-body problem and, and identity and things like that. It's really interesting because in the book you include a lot of your course notes, don't you? And so we see what you were actually teaching the prisoners and how you taught them mm -hmm. and then how they responded to that particular mm -hmm. teaching. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, I tried to get that because I felt it was really important people understood the dynamics of the classroom. Um, the book is based on my PhD, but a lot of that stuff is not actually in the PhD because um, it, this was about, I wanted to really explore like this is what it was like in the classroom and this is how it went to try and get people's interests and understanding but the growth and development the thing about prison is that prisoners are natural philosophers this is something that other people recognize like it, it kind of it's been talked about um and it, it's partly because when you go to prison um there's right people call it an existential crisis i think that's alison liebling's term um that that you go to prison and it's it's this kind of radical shattering it, it it like you turn up and all of a sudden you've been ripped out of your world you're, you're in this new place you may or may not um if you're innocent was most of my guys didn't maintain any well basically all of my guys apart from one didn't maintain any innocence and were, okay. were com well ad admitted to the to the um to the offenses that they've been convicted of and they you know that means that they've done something quite difficult to to deal with as a person and you basically in max in high security you you don't share a cell with anyone you get single cell occupancy as a general rule so you're basically in a cell from seven at night until seven in the morning on your own um, with a telly sometimes if you can rent it or a radio with some books but you have a lot of time sitting in a room on your own thinking about that yeah and that's very that, that it's very philosophical that's that is philosophy yeah. um that's what people do sit and think over things um and so when you get into the classroom um, and, and you engage them in these topics, I, I found that there was just almost this like, th there was a thirst for it, for intellectual stimulation. Everything that you hear about prisons and, and, and how they can be violent and dangerous, there, there is an aspect of that, but the overwhelming feeling in a prison as a rule, in my experience, is boredom. It's just, it's just yeah. incredibly dull. Um, and so to get something where they, they've got intellectual stimulation, they turned and there was a thirst for it. But for some of them, there was almost like this like need for it. It felt like they just desperately needed this opportunity to just sit in a non-judgmental atmosphere in a space that where they wouldn't get written up for anything that they said. It was nothing to do with their right. offending. 
behavior it was nothing to do with their parole opportunities and they could just sit and have a conversation and debate or it wasn't really debate that's probably the wrong word actually but they could sit and um have a conversation with other people about the big questions in life it actually gives them a framework for all these thoughts i suppose doesn't it so for you to bring work of kant descartes whoever it allows them to shape their thoughts doesn't it and direct them somewhere i suppose which might be really hard if you've never really thought about philosophy or that kind of thinking yeah absolutely it gives them a a, a, a sort of framework or a structure and a space to sort of think about yeah to think about this out loud with other people and right. importantly we're not in the, the the most important part of this or one of the most important parts of doing this with this particular population is the sort of philosophy for children pedagogy and, and other people other sort of Socratic dialogue methods of engaging people in active philosophizing you're not there to impose a framework it's or, or of how to think about things you're there to give people the opportunity to work out their own way of thinking about stuff and in right. fact, gain a sense gain a sense of you know so it's it's if somebody comes and says well I think that Kant is wrong and that's not the way to think about something you you can say to them well why, why do you think that where's that come from or or sometimes in the book I talk about moments where they just say something that I feel is completely off topic but you know something like um I think there was one where they just ended up talking about um smoking in a car with a child where it was morally acceptable yeah. to smoke in a car with a child which is a perfectly reasonable topic but if, you, if you're not careful everyone could, will just debate that and what you can do in this environment is say okay so you think it's not okay to smoke in, in a car with a child why do you think that what's going on and then they might say something about well you're harming the child okay what does that say about the child's rights and how you should behave and then then you can start getting into this conversation about well how like how far do we take the notion that we're allowed to do what we long want so long as we don't harm somebody what does harm look like what is harm how much harm is acceptable based on what you need to do so you get into these sort of bigger questions just from this one one yeah, yeah. thing and I think in yeah. some ways that's where the growth and development comes in because it's just the space where you can just unpick ideas and take a bit of time yeah to, to think about things more deeply yeah and I'm guessing that the reaction and the experience were quite different for the different types of prisoners. So you imagine the guys who have been there for a long time, probably a bit more open to this kind of thinking, whereas maybe people who hadn't been in prison for so long found it harder. And Yes, I mean, I guess we have, we have to be careful that, uh, you know, this hasn't necessarily been um sort of tested in other environments. And, and it's hard to unpick the difference between the specific atmosphere of the specific prison I was working in and the where they are in their sentences but my right. experience was that in Grendon um as I say in the book in in Grendon fundamentally the men sit around and do Socratic questioning as part that's a standard technique used in in therapeutic dialogue so they what that meant was is that they understood the concept of sitting in a circle and talking to each other about complex things that might mean that they disagree with each other, that might mean that they um, have a different perspective, that they might hear things that they don't like, but they knew how to do that. And I meant that I could just kind of come in and go, oh, you, you guys all understand how to talk to each other. And, and that means we can just focus on the philosophical content. Yeah. And it was very distinct from what they did in therapy in that, you know, we weren't focusing on their offending behaviours. It had nothing to do with what we were doing. Uh, and in some ways it was kind of a bit of fun. It was a more like, you know, the bigger things. Uh, bigger questions in life but in 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 full Sutton 
um, the two environments um, were quite different. In both environments, all both groups struggled with in the first few weeks with what they needed to do in the classroom or, or what we were trying to achieve, which was being able to talk across each other um, and listen to each other. So vulnerable prisoners, um, a lot of the research um, around the sort of vulnerable prisoners units um, and what it's like in their environments is that uh, that particular group of prisoners is, is quite quiet, it's quite calm, quite compliant. So if, when I was on the VP wing, when I was, which is again in the same space, same roots corridor, but when I was working with the VP population, mm. it was just this calm atmosphere where everybody just kind of like kept themselves to themselves. Um, everybody uh, was polite and compliant with the prison staff. And, and what that translated to in the prison classroom was that they would not, wouldn't talk to each other. So every conversation right. flowed through me. So I would say a question and they would respond to me. And then I would try and ask another, I, I would try and push another and I'd ask if anybody else and they'd respond to me. And it right. took three or four weeks before they started talking to each other. And allowing that and it was I think I think they thought that I was I think some of them wrote at the end of the the feedback form things like this will really help me in my parole this has helped me think about my offense and I was a bit like okay great but you know that I'm not part of this system yeah I don't know anything about this I'm not you know I'm not going to go this isn't going to help you in your parole mm -hmm. I'm just here to give you an opportunity to talk about philosophy and about three or four weeks in they, they got that and they kind of relaxed and they started talking to each other so how long were the courses? 12 weeks. 12 weeks, okay. Yeah, 12 yeah. weeks. Um, oh, so it took a fair chunk of that for them to... Took, yeah, yeah a good three yeah. or four weeks. And when you think that, that often programmes are only six weeks, in my experience, right. it took three or four weeks for them to just relax and trust me. Um, so that's a bit of a lesson then, isn't it? If we were to put these kinds of things in, you've got to make sure they're long enough for people, for them to be effective. Well, the the mainstream group took a lot longer. So it was okay. the exact opposite with them. Full Sutton is a very, and this, this has been written about elsewhere as well, but it was a very politically and sort of religiously charged prison. It was right. evident from the moment that I got there. Um, I'm not a religious person. I've never really been to religious institutions. I, I wasn't brought up in, in that way. And the moment I came in, I was sort of asked about my uh, religion, my ethnicity. Um, for the podcast, I, I'm, I'm sort of a white female from the from the, from England but I, I've got Polish and Jewish ancestry and I am often asked if I if I'm Jewish and um there's a and it was just sort of there religious identity was right at the front okay forefront of what what was going on and um in particular there was a very strong sort of Muslim presence um of of men and and they um displayed their their religion through their clothing and their and their and I saw men carrying Qurans around um and and things like that so it was just very politically charged so when I got into the classroom where I had sort of two um Muslim prisoners who had been convicted of um terrorism offenses um I had one Muslim prisoner who'd been convicted of, of something else um I also had a kind of a chap who who was like just an atheist and and quite quite aggressive and, and ranting atheist um, and he right. was really concerned about the sort of religious narratives in the prison um I had a guy who would describe himself as a spiritualist and then I had a catholic guy as wow. well um and I I'm I'm atheist and don't really understand any of this and all of a sudden I was in this group with these people that's who quite had, intense isn't it it was really intense how and many 
situation how there's no times in life where you're in that kind of tiny group with such different people no. yeah. in, a, in, a, in a low ceilinged room with no windows wow um, and yeah it was really really intense and it was and it's somehow I got this microcosm of the broader prison community in this philosophy yeah and it was the complete opposite to the vulnerable prisoners where the vulnerable prisoners would speak only speak to me the mainstream prisoners would only speak to each other I would, they were just like arguing with each other and I was just sort of desperately trying to get them to and they really went to each other and I was just trying to like get them to speak about camp try and remember my philosophical training I had people storming out at various points uh, I definitely mishandled situations at, at, at some points and in the book I talk about how I found things exhausting but the prisoners quite enjoyed it and and it took there was a I, there was a point where I thought I can't carry on this isn't working these guys aren't getting it um, can you give us an example of a really challenging moment that you had yeah so okay so really one really challenging moment early on was when I lost one of my participants and he refused to come back and this is in in the book as well mm. but we were talking about um I can't remember what philosophical topic it was now off the top of my head but somehow we got onto the issue of Greek debt and what was going on in Greece. And this was the point, this was when um, the, the, I, um, people might remember that must have, I was teaching there in what, 2015 or something. So this is when there was this big issue between with Greek debt and the European Union. It was in the news a lot. Yeah. And they, they, one of them had brought it up. Um, I feel like it might have been to do with when we were talking about um, deontology or something like that, Kant, it would be in the book, but, um, we were talking about Greek debt and one of them gave a perfectly reasonable articulation of what he thought about it. And then one of the other chaps responded by saying, I could not disagree with you more, but he said it so aggressively. He was like, I could not disagree with you more. Okay. Uh, and I was like, ooh. And the other guy just looked at him and said, you could not disagree with me more. And they just ended up in this huge, like in this, well, not huge, it didn't go on for a long time, but this just brief moment of being quite like back and forth with each other. Right. Not in a, not, it was ne there was never any physical threats. I never felt like someone was about to punch anybody or there was any fighting or anything like that. But it was quite like, it was basically quite macho between them. Okay. And they and they just, he, he got really angry. And then I kind of mishandled it where I just sort of tried to calm it down. And I could see one person was annoyed and the other person annoyed the other. I was like, okay, let's just stop. Uh, and I said to the guy who'd been talking about Greek debt in the first place, I said he was clear, really clearly quite angry and he was using his rosary beads to um calm himself down and I just said right. like would you like to step outside would you like to just take a minute to go and like maybe go to the loo and calm down and I realized that it was actually really patronizing um to say that um I, I was I, I was used to teach in schools and and, and obviously you can't treat adult men in the same way that you do young people but I didn't did, did he leave he stormed out and he never came back yeah you never came right. back to yeah. Um, and he, he blamed me for it. He said that I, um, I the, the, the way I spoke to him was was not OK. And, and he's probably right. Um, I went and spoke to him the next time I was in the prison and I apologised and I said, look, would you like to come back? I'm really sorry about the way I handled it. And he didn't. Mm. The main thing that I worked out, though, was that for, as, as a direct result of that, I was sure that was about week two or three, maybe four, week three or four. Oh, OK, quite early and, on. Yeah, very early yeah. on. And, I, what I learned was that whilst there was this bravado, very male environment where people literally would swagger down corridors, the way they talked to each other in this bit, like often 
that lots of guys work out in prisons, often quite big guys. And this guy that stormed out was one of the biggest people I've ever seen. He was so tall, so long wow. sword. But what I realised that was that behind all of this was actually quite a fragile ego. Yeah. Um, and, and that they needed that, that, that was often a bit of a front, um, yeah. which is, that's the other part of the literature. There was desistance literature, but that's where the survival identity stuff comes in. Yeah. And you, the prison sociological literature is, is speaks of it quite far better than I do. And there's quite a lot of theories about it. I, I used um, Goffman's metaphor of this kind of front stage, backstage yes. self to yeah. try to explain this, that, that, that these guys had this machismo front that they, that they probably needed to survive that prison environment psychologically and yeah. possibly physically. Um, but it meant that if you just spent it, like it meant that there's no room for anything else. There's no space where they can drop that mask and, and have a backstage self. Um, so I actually wrote down a quote from the book where you oh, say the identity work required to survive in prison might be at odds with the identity work required to grow and successfully desist from crime. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is, isn't it? They, su they survive it, but they're yeah. not going to grow and change and that kind of thing. I think the, that, that side of thing is, is, is that's one of the key lessons from the book that I'm trying I think it can come across to people, oh, you talk philosophy to prisoners, oh, great, whatever, like, but, but actually there's a really important lesson here, that like, we put people into prison as a society, who we, and we tell them, there's a few that might stay in for really long periods, but most will come out at some point, and we say, you've done something that you shouldn't have done, we're putting you in prison, and, 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 you need, and we need to change this, but then we put them in this environment that, that is completely alien to anything that they'll have outside, where machismo and and um you know like being on top and where you can never be yourself you, you have to watch what you say um where otherwise you know you might end up being sort of lower down in the hierarchy you might end up being bullied or exploited by other people in the prison and and then somehow we say like oh but you're supposed to be rehabilitated and come out of prison being like a being better person to, like, yeah being able to go you know to engage in normal society it's a really yeah. like for anybody who spent any time working in prisons I think that's one of the things that we find the most bizarre about the, the situation that we that we think that these these places are going to have this impact when they just maybe I mean there are some people who come out of prison and, and do really well for themselves but I feel like my my sense is that that's in spite of the system not because of it yeah, yeah, it feels very, it's very dehumanizing, isn't it, I think, yeah. and philosophy feels like something that where people do connect with their humanity and their identity a bit, so just, I suppose you're thinking about, well, why would you teach philosophy in prisons, you could yeah. teach all sorts of things in prisons, why this in particular, and maybe that's a good reason for it, like you say yeah. in the book, it, Creates yeah, a I, balance with the environment that they're in, I think, which isn't yeah. very human or, or human. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if humans are word, but I mean, on, yeah. on the hu human stuff, like, yeah, the, the, there are different things that are important here. Um, but the being human was part of it. I think it's, it, I talk about that quite a lot in this mm. sense. And there's a few things going on here. First of all, literally, just so for some of them, particularly the vulnerable prisoners, all of whom had been convicted of, of sexual offences, mostly against women, just for for a young woman um, to come into a prison and just sit down, not mention it, not think about it, and just have these philosophical. And I was quite open; I, I would engage with them about my philosophical views. Um, okay. I think that for them was 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 deeply rewarding that someone would would do that. 
but it also the, the 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 actual nature of the and you might be able to get this through other things through things like literature but the nature of philosophy and philosophical conversation it connects them to humanity it connects all of us if, if we sit down and have conversations um like this what you're basically doing is engaging in a moral conversation or um a sort of political philosophical conversation with other people that human beings have been having for a really long time. Other people have had these conversations, but each one is new and different. And we're all, it's, it means that you're kind of part of this human tradition of, 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 of trying to unpick, you know, what justice is, what it means to live a good life. And, and I mean that in the sense of um, the ancient Greeks, eudaimonia, to live a happy and fulfilled life, not a moral yeah. good life. Yeah. all of that kind of thing so it's sort of yeah that 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 humanness is also about yes there's the prison environment and yes it's a good to give them a space where they're not being labeled as an offender and they can be a person but there's also this thing about philosophy that just connected them connected yeah. them to the outside world yeah um how did you deal with the knowledge of their crimes did you just kind of switch try not to think about what they'd done when you were in the room with them yes yeah, yeah, the best. Like, I mean, I, I'm. I took. I take the view that it's not my job to to judge them. It's not my job to be part of that system. I mean, yeah. fundamentally, they have legally and technically been judged and sentenced to a prison sentence. That's already happened. That's not. You know, that's not my job. I may agree or disagree. When you work in prison, sometimes you do come across situations where you're just like, this doesn't seem fair, but. I may right. agree or disagree with th that judgment, but it, but it's happened somewhere else, and it, they don't need it anymore. There are other people in the prison that will work with them on 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 their yeah. offending behaviours and things like that. Um, yeah. So no, I I would just basically when I was with them, um, what I was doing was sitting in front of another human being. This is a human. I'm a human. Um, yes, I'm aware of, of some of the things that you might have done, but we're not going to talk about that and it doesn't matter. You're still a human being and I'm a human being and we're just going to have a conversation. Yeah. Some of the human beings started. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. that. That was it. Really. Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah. I was just interested to hear how you dealt with that. So I think, I mean, we can kind of see the benefits that this um, has. Was there a particular moment where you, I don't know, had a conversation with someone after they'd done the course where you thought, actually, yeah, this is a really positive thing to do. And um, yeah, I think we talked about a challenging moment, like what was a good moment that had a big impact on you? So at the end of the book, I talk about moments of growth and um, I finished the book with a, with, a, with a series of kind of just semi-anecdotal but brief ideas of moments of growth again none of this was in the PhD but the I talked about them because there were just these little moments that I had with some of the participants usually after they they'd engaged with the course mm. that just demonstrated or, or, or indicated that that we'd created some kind of relationship that would allow for them to self-reflect on something in, in a positive way and it wasn't always about their crimes um, it was often just about themselves. Occasionally it was about their offending behaviours. And that that was quite interesting when 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 you hear them. So um, one of them, for example, was a guy who was a really interesting character. He'd been convicted. I'll try and keep it quite vague um, so it's not 
able to discern who he is. But he'd been convicted of, of a crime against a woman, a very, very serious crime against a woman. And, and he didn't, the way he talked about it, the first time I met him, he told me what he'd done in, in, in reasonable detail. Um, and he, he was quite an interesting character. It was like he almost had, he didn't, he, he sort of kind of seemed to enjoy the notoriety a little bit of what he'd done maybe. Okay. He had something like that. And when he first came to the classroom, he was very like, he would sort of sit back and look. And he, he seemed, and basically after a few weeks, he, he started to open up and started to talk. And it was almost like he was just constantly on guard um, ab mm. about what people would think I don't know whether, I mean, I could psychoanalyze it, I suppose. Maybe maybe his tactic was that instead of people, you know, put, being on guard and waiting for somebody to judge you when you when they know what you've done, maybe he his decision was to just go out and tell people that whenever he met them in the prison. Just yeah. To, I, don't, I don't know what, what his thinking was, but he was quite an interesting character. And, and I just saw him gradually open up and relax, but also sort of be a bit, he, he didn't, he was quite surprised that, this was even possible to have this reflection and he wrote me a really interesting letter where he talked about how he, he reflected on things in his life that he's never ever talked about before and even when we were in the post-participation interview I remember sitting there and and we were reflecting on a conversation that had been had in the philosophy classroom about relationships and how relationships are and um, and and I think I said something like um you know, when you go into a relationship with somebody, we were talking about romantic relationships. So when you go into, into a relationship with somebody, you know, the, you know, openness and honesty is important. And he'd responded by just saying, but Kirstine, I told her, I told her that I had a temper. And I looked at him and just said, okay, well, uh, do you not see that, that that's maybe quite a threatening thing to say to somebody? That's quite threatening to, to say you, that you've got a temper. And he just looked at me with this complete shock on his face and went, that is quite threatening. That is. And he, he just hadn't thought of this. Wow. Fact. Okay. And he just sort of went, oh, it is quite threatening. And I was like, okay, well, that's, I mean, there, there's a little bit of growth for you. I mean, it's not necessarily <laughs> going to solve your problems. But, but the fact is, is that my sense of it was that I had spent time with these people. I had developed relationships with them. And because we had spent so much time just talking about normal stuff, well, philosophy, he, we could have this candid conversation. And that happened a few times, these just little moments where because I'd got to know them, we'd had a bit of a laugh in the philosophy classroom. I'd given them my opinions. They, they would often disagree with me and occasionally completely um, outfox me. I would say, oh, I, I think this. And then they'd come back with a retort that was right. disproved anything that I said. And because I, oh, right. I had humility <laughs> and just let them yeah. agree with them on that, on that point, they yeah. would develop quite a good rapport. And that just meant that he felt comfortable. I, I felt comfortable being able to point out that this comment was a really threatening comment and that and it just gave this sort of little moment where he was able to reflect on that and yeah I'm not nobody's saying that these I have no evidence to all that these will have long-term effects but what I have is evidence that if you give people this space and place to engage in work like this then these little moments of growth occur and yeah. maybe if we did more of that, more moments of growth would occur and maybe they yeah. would build up to something. That's 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 all I'm saying. Yeah, it's the value of that human connection as well and having convers it brings in the opportunity to have conversations that they're just not gonna have in the prison environment without it, are they? Yeah. I mean, in the Ford, Nigel Warburton says that the book presents a powerful case for bringing philosophy teaching into prisons, mm. um, which is what we're talking about. 
Yeah. Outside of what you've done, is it part of um, prison education in any way at the moment? And if not, how could it be so? I think policy has changed recently and it focuses more on employability, which might mean that things like philosophy get pushed out. Um, so, in it, so again, England and Wales is quite different to places like Scotland. I'm, I'm not that I'm not familiar with the Northern Irish system at all. Um, in Scotland, so I talk about this in the in the book, and I've written a paper on it as well. But um, in Scotland, I, this my first pilot project. I taught a little bit in a prison in London as a, as part of my masters, and then I did a pilot which was with a lady called Nikki Cameron in Scotland, and she would, had been running philosophy classes for a while in her prison and so halfway through the PhD I think that the, the whole college the college covered something like seven prisons in Scotland which I think is about half or a third of the prisons in in in, in the region okay. um, um, and they were all running these philosophy classes so there was a period I'm not sure if it's still going on but I know in Scotland and um, there's quite a few sort of initiatives like this there's some people up at Edinburgh and Glasgow who run sessions called MOOCs or something and so there's oh, yeah. a bit, a bit, it's a smaller system up there and it's not necessarily something that is embedded into the system fully, but there is definitely a lot more conversation. In England and Wales, it's a much larger, much more complicated system. And there are a few sessions, um, a few organisations that are sort of doing it. My colleagues and friends, uh, Mike Cox said and Andy West have been running um, prisons in London, uh, philosophy in London for, for a long time. Um, but um, it's not something that is commonplace still okay and in, in the, the education system is in prisons um I, when i started this 10 years ago it was just as um uh the sort of coalition government was coming in and, and it was 2011 12 so we were a few years after the big financial crisis maybe yeah 2013 maybe and um things had been reduced dramatically and a lot of the staff were talking about how oh two years ago we had the we had this whole system of GCSEs and A levels and now we're not allowed to give level three courses and everything had just been stripped away. Okay. And, um, so unfortunately um, I might be a little bit out of date on this but I'm pretty sure I, it's still the case that the majority of education is focused on basic skills, literacy, numeracy and employability. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm not that's not that is important but yeah there, is, there are quite a lot of people in the prison system who I can't remember the statistics but you know some there is a much higher proportion of people in prison who struggle with literacy and numeracy but there's still a lot of people who, who already have that level of thinking and 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 they, there isn't that much of an opportunity there the open university does stuff um there's the the sort of prison university partnership organizations yeah. that that do things where universities go in and, and do various courses with them um, but it's not embedded into the system and they're a little bit ad hoc and, and often take a little bit of self-motivation um, there are always art classes there's often a music class the art okay. always seems to survive in prisons I don't think I've ever been into a prison without an art room that I can think of I can't think of a time when I, I haven't so there's a few bits and bobs but it's all a little bit piecemeal all a little bit ad hoc nothing nothing particularly with the exception of literacy and numeracy and a few sort of other sort of basic skills, level one, level two courses. Yeah, yeah. pretty stripped back. It really feels like if you added this to the mix, then the benefits of the literacy and numeracy would be more, wouldn't it? Because people might might be in a better headspace to live their life a little bit differently when they got out of prison and then they'd be more likely to use those skills. 
I mean, I this isn't just a discussion. This is true of across the board. Like you, adult education colleges often focus on this and even I've heard it outside of the prison, but yeah, I completely agree. That's true, like, yeah. Like literacy, fundamentally, what, what ha what's happened in the prison environment is that people who commit criminal activities have higher like incidences of um, poor literacy, poor numeracy and poor thinking skills. This is what people have decided that there's deficits within this population, according to various um, perspectives in literacy, numeracy and thinking skills. So what do we do? We teach literacy, numeracy and thinking skills when we could be teaching English, mathematics and philosophy. And instead yeah. we teach, we, we're just stripping this back. Like you can, you will gain literacy by engaging with interesting literature. You will yeah. gain numeracy by engaging with a, the broader mathematical world and because it's quite interesting numeracy is dull mathematics is interesting well i think it is anyway but and thinking skills is the same fine you can sit and learn thinking skills or you could just come to a philosophy classroom and have an interesting conversation and you'll gain these skills as part of that so it's not necessarily about adding things and having to spend more money on teaching and more time it's about rethinking how you teach and teaching things in different ways isn't it yes yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't in any way, I, the staff that I met in the prison, the, the education staff were all basically agreed with this perspective, but they were tied by the way the government um, hands out contracts, but the staff are, are ready and there and capable and available to be teaching these broad subjects and they yeah. often do their best. They often squeeze in like shoehorn little course, extra courses in that are more interesting. Right. They try their best and there's a very highly qualified staff base in the education system in prisons. Most of them have got teaching qualifications, often doing master's degrees, mm. you know, and, and, and but they're not allowed. They have to just teach, you know, there's this you must get your literacy level two type. So I think probably covered a lot of your ideas about how prison education can be improved um, but just to finish up finish up thinking a bit more generally you said something in the book and we talked a little bit earlier that i felt really encapsulated the problem of prisons well um, and you said what i'm left with is an unshakable sense of injustice which is an interesting observation when we consider prisons a part of our justice system so to finish, I just wanted to look to the future and ask you about the prison system more broadly, as well as bringing in more philosophy teaching and changing how we teach. How would you like to see prisons reformed? I would like to see a greater emphasis on, on growth um, and giving people... I started to think about this in terms of we spend a lot of time talking about diverting people away from particular activities, diverting people away from particular lifestyles, um, from criminal activities whatever it is but if we're going to divert somebody away from something we have to divert them towards something else they have to go somewhere right it's, yeah it's, it's all well and good saying well we, we we want to get you we want to divert you away from spending your life taking drugs fine but you've got to fill the void somehow that you need to give people something else to do a, a legitimate way of spending their life and if they're earning lots and lots of money by let's say they're earning lots of money by drug dealing it's going to be very difficult for them to maintain the straight and narrow if the only thing that they can do is be go work on minimum wage mm. when they've got you know kids to feed and stuff like that uh, when they know they could be earning more money somewhere else like it's a difficult thing so you have you have to give people opportunities uh, and and structural opportunities yes fine we can talk about individual responsibility but you have to give people the opportunities to find their own path out of it to sca some scaffolding to let them go their own way and, and and work their way 
towards something else. So I'd like to see more of that. I mean, beyond the obvious of we lock far too many people up in this country and, yeah. and they're underfunded and all of that, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see a, a huge reduction in the number of people that are sent to prison in the first place. But we yeah. always have to give people opportunities. Yeah. And it feels like philosophy can kind of give people a bit of a thought framework to make the most of them as well. Um, yeah. 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 Um, thank you, Kirstine. Um, I genuinely enjoyed reading the book. It was really interesting. And so thank you for writing the book, which is called Philosophy Behind Bars, Growth and Development in Prison. It's published by Bristol University Press. And you can find more information at bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.